Welcome to this edition of Nupi's The World Stage podcast. Today we are in conversation with Mats Berdal and Jana Krause on the topic of the political economy of civil war and UN peace operations. My name is Cedric de Kooning and I'm a research professor here at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, where I co-direct the Nupi Center on UN and Global Governance. And I'm your host today. Mats Berdal is a professor of security and development in the Department of War Studies at King's College, where he directs the Conflict, Security and Development Research Program. And together with Jake Sherman, Mats edited a new book on the political economy of civil war and UN peace operations, published by Rutledge earlier this year, which we are going to discuss today. Jana Krauser is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Oslo, and Jana is the author of a book on resilient communities, nonviolence, and civilian agency in communal war, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. And her current research focuses on conflict, food insecurity, and local peace building in South Sudan and Kenya. So I think uh, Jana's research is also very relevant for the topic of our discussion today. But Mats, let's start with you. Um, can you explain to us uh, what the problem is that you and Jake have identified and that you wanted to address in this book? And, and, and why is this problem important? Well, thank you very much, Cedric, and thank you for the opportunity um, to participate in this discussion. I think the overall focus of the book um, can be summarized quite simply as the, the fact um, that UN peace operations are overwhelmingly deployed within societies fractured by civil war. And it is our conviction before and indeed reinforced by the book itself that in order to understand why the UN has encountered uh, difficulties, operational and political otherwise in these settings, one has to understand the political economy of civil war. And specifically, the book focuses on the impact of these political economies on the activities of UN operations, on the ways in which the power structures and conflict dynamics generated by these political economies interact with UN missions themselves. Now, you asked why this particular focus and why this book, and that, of course, is a, a very important question. The first and very simple one, um, but nonetheless very important, is that although our focus is overwhelmingly, or Western media at any rate, is focused on on Ukraine and its political fallout. The reality is that there are still some 90,000 peacekeepers deployed on 12 missions, uh, very ambitious missions, and these are overwhelmingly deployed within contexts of, of civil war. That's the first and sort of, if you like, obvious reason. The second, I think, reason why we wanted to, to look at it is that in these kinds of civil war settings, even though the UN, as you know, is technically deployed in a third-party capacity, they, the peacekeepers themselves, become actors, political and economic actors in their own right. And as I think the chapters in the book case, book demonstrates in some cases, and I think Somalia is a very good example, external peace operations and peace building missions can become a critical source of finance and resources for political elites and their supporters struggle over. So the, the very presence and dispositions of a UN peace operation in a mission area becomes a factor that impinges directly on local political arrangements. While, of course, as we know from previous operations, their footprint 
uh, can be very profound and distorting. And the final reason is really simply that the record of UN operations in these settings is is mixed. I'll, I'll, I'll use the word mixed. It's not all negative, um, but it's an uneven record. And I think what we wanted to do was to try to understand why that record is so uneven. That's very interesting. And, and what approach have you followed to make sense of this you know, complex relationship between the peacekeeping operations and the, the local communities and the local economy that they are embedded in and that they influence and that influence them. Um, so what what methodology have you followed in the book and, and what kind of cases have you looked at? Well, that's a, a, a critical question uh, and a very good question. And I think it begs um, a preliminary one. I need to tell you something very briefly. <laughs> Um, what we understand by by political economy. And by political economy, we understand at its broadest level simply the interconnectedness or the interaction between economic and other forces. And we are particularly in, interested, obviously, on the political economy of civil wars. And, and what that means with respect to our focus is that we're looking at the you know, to be precise, the interaction of political and economic agendas among different actors within zones of conflict. We're looking at the informal networks of power, of patronage and influence formed by those interactions and the way in which in turn these shape the dynamics, conflicts and patterns of violence and prospects of peace. Now, I, I want to say a word about definitions because there's an important point here and, and it is that we are very keen to emphasize that we're looking at the political economy of conflict uh, and we do not want to reduce political economy as happens in some of the literature to economics and material benefits alone. So in that sense, um, the case studies, which I'll come back to in a minute and we'll discuss, uh, are very much a warning against what you might call a reductionist definition of what drives conflict. It is not simply economic and material calculations. And what we need to look at is the interaction between politics, historical factors and a whole range of other motives for conflict actors. So I think that is, that is an important point. Now, how do we then go about it? Well, what we've done with that definition, with that focus on interaction between political and economic agendas is to divide the book itself into what we call thematic or conceptual issues and then a series of, of select case studies. And I think um, what I would add here, and I'm sure you, Cedric, will appreciate this in particular, is that when conceiving of this project, I thought it was very important to combine the insights of practitioners, insights of people that had been involved in leading, managing, and otherwise directing operations with that of scholars. Uh, and I think there is a tendency in some of the academic discourse to, to keep those two areas too, too separate. Uh, and you'll see from the, uh, from the list of contributors, we have a number of um, contributors who actually straddle that anyway, as indeed you do, Cedric, yourself, um, people who have themselves had direct involvement in operations, 
either at a very senior level or in the mission, but also have an analytical bent. And I think that combination is very important. And the other thing we wanted to do was to make sure that we had detailed case studies, because I think there is absolutely no escape from a detailed analysis of individual cases. And indeed, one of the findings, and I think it's Jean-Marie Guenot who says this in his chapter, that there are in fact an infinite variety or nuances of political economies, and they can only be fully grasped uh, if uh, uh, we look at them in, in, in detail. You ask about the case studies. Well, um, in addition to the thematic issues, just let me mention a few. I'm mentioning the thematic issues are really areas covering the way in which the UN has tried to deal and interact and, and engage with the political economy. So we look at things like analytical capacity, uh, intelligence resources. We look at some of the tools, whether the UN sanctions tools and panels of experts can be used effectively. And, and we look at particular subject areas where the political economy is, is particularly challenging and complex. For example, the whole area of illicit economies, organized crime in zones of conflict. In terms of the case studies, we are looking at uh, some of the larger operations, the ones with which people will be instantly familiar as having a political economy dimension, the, the DRC, Congo, uh, the mission in South Sudan and in Mali, but also some of the slightly smaller um, special political missions like in, in, in Afghanistan. And then we have a set of fairly uh, pragmatic uh, policy conclusions at the end. That's a really fascinating set of cases and, and thematic issues. Um, and I think it's a really uh, interesting and also always a challenge also to try and combine policy and research. And, and I know, you know, when you deal with an edited book, you need to kind of convince your publisher that you've got a kind of a coherent flow. So that's all I can imagine the challenges you went through uh, in producing the book, but with a fascinating result. And, and uh, that's, I think, what our listeners would be quite interested in, is to understand what has been your core findings and what do you think are the implications of these findings um, for those who are responsible for planning and managing peace operations in the future? That's another good question. As you know well, when you do edited volumes, it's sometimes um, tempting but dangerous to impose a kind of coherence on the conclusions and findings. Um, I think I can say a few words about the oral conclusions and perhaps tease out some of the more specific lessons, bearing in mind, as I said, that many of these individual cases are, are quite specific. I think one way of approaching the overall lessons is that it is striking, to start by saying that it is striking, that all of the large missions we looked at, indeed all the missions we looked at, the mandate of the United Nations was to extend state authority and bolster state capacity. That's the taken from the mission statement. Uh, and that, that aim of the UN mission uh, was made on the assumption, perfectly reasonable and understandable, that the costs and the destruction that civil war has generated requires state capacity to be rebuilt. So we're going to talk in a minute about South Sudan, but there, of course, the suggestion, I think, is a World Bank quote, South Sudan was going to be rebuilt from scratch. And I think one of the overall and core findings, uh, Cedric, is that while that focus on state capacity remains important, the conditions of civil war and protracted conflict in which these UN forces find themselves don't simply weaken um, state capacity. They also transform the social, economic and political base of power within those societies. Uh, 
and that results in the emergence of what you might call alternative political orders uh, and distinctive political economies. And, and what political economy analysis does, or the political economy lens that we're applying does, uh, is to show that although deeply destructive and costly, um, civil war cannot be viewed simply as a descent into purposeless violence or, or chaos or anarchy. As I said, alternative systems emerge, and again, repeating myself that there are an infinite variety of political economy, I think a couple of common characteristics emerge from the book. Let me be very, very brief about this. So rather than a collapse of a Weberian state into anarchy, we have settings where alternative political orders of governments emerge in the course of which conflict may become a preferred political ecosystem. That phrase is taken from Ken Menkhaus and Paul Williams's paper, especially a preferred system for political military elites who see some functional utility in violence and may even develop vested interest in, in continued uh, weakness and informal governance. A second point I think we see across in lessons is that political economies are often predatory, obviously, violent and exploitative, but they also represent, in many cases, a coping or survival strategy for populations torn or shorn of livelihoods and living in conditions of state insecurity. The third thing I would emphasize again from the case studies is that these kind of political economies are neither fixed nor static. They are dynamic and they mutate over time, which of course is another challenge in terms of analysis. The fourth that cut across different cases is that these political economies are always invariably embedded into regional patterns of conflict and often sustained not just by regional but transnational and even global networks of economic activity. And finally, just to say that in many cases, the very distinction between war and peace, again, as you will know from your travels, is typically blurred and, and messy. And indeed, there is a tendency for the line between state and non-state actors to become entirely dissolved over time. So your question, of course, is a good one. What, what, what are the implications for, for, the, for the UN? Well, I think the, the, and that flow from this, I think it is absolutely critical. We can perhaps come into some of the policy recommendations, but I think it's critical, obviously, to develop a... a, a an, an understanding and appreciation of the dynamics of political economy. And that political economy lens allows you to do certain things which seem to me very important. Um, and I will just flag some of them. First of all, political economy analysis of the kind I've mentioned is critical to understand the sources of violence and the dynamics of armed group behavior. We can talk about individual cases, but you know, what actually drives the ADF in Eastern Congo? What is the nature of the ADF movement? Um, second, I think um, political economy analysis is critical to an understanding of informal systems of governance um, that often um, uh, replace what looks like the collapse of state institutions. And as I suggested a minute ago, those are not necessarily always just predatory and exploitative, but there might be other forms of informal governance into which the UN, well, which the UN has to interact, but also tap for, for purposes of dialogue and, and rebuilding. I think the third uh, thing which is critical with political economy, what it brings out, allows you to look at the, the, the transnational and highly networked characteristics of modern war economies, uh, without which um, you know, it is very difficult to, 
to understand what drives a particular conflict. Again, it has implications for the UN, which certainly sitting in New York is a very state-centric organization. And finally, I think we also suggest that, you know, one of the very useful things with political common analysis, it just helps you to to challenge some of the conventional and reflex response to how these, uh, what the tasks of the UN should be, particularly when sitting in New York, and particularly this whole issue of rebuilding state capacity. Um, I think we'll come into in a minute whether, for example, what does it mean to reassert the primacy of politics and peace operations? Um, does it actually mean that we should try to bang heads together at the highest levels in capitals between armed factions? Or might we have to go down at the lower level where informal mechanism and structures operate? And that's the subject of a chapter by, by Kenny Gluck in particular, who's a, who's a very interesting case, partly because he has so much experience, again, from the field and also, and also academically. Oh, thank you so much, Mats. Um, and I think we will definitely come back to, to some of those very interesting findings and observations. But I, I want to bring Jana in first. Um, Jana, one of the case studies uh, in Mats and Jake's books is on South Sudan. And I, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you are currently also working on South Sudan, where you look at conflict and insecurity and food security and local peace building. Um, can you reflect on on the book, uh, I'm talking about Mats and Jake's book, about the book's arguments on on peace processes and, and perhaps peacemaking more broadly from, from your scholarship. How does this uh, relate for you? Well, thanks very much, first of all, Cedric, uh, for the invitation uh, to comment um, on this uh, excellent book. Uh, it's been a pleasure to engage uh, with the various chapters, precisely because, as Matt's just outlined, some chapters are scholarly analysis, others come from a more practitioner perspective. And so the book is highly insightful. And um, I was particularly um, impressed with the reflections um, by Kenny Gluck, for example, in his chapter, um, on uh, international peacemaking, peace negotiations, <clears throat> and the many ways that years of mediation uh, internationally facilitated peace processes produce numerous agreements, celebratory peace conferences, um, but little relief from, from the violence and abuses which characterize um, these conflicts. For example, as uh, Gluck details in the Central African Republic, there have been so many failed peace agreements over the past decade that it is understandable that the population may place little trust into further negotiations. Mm -hmm. um, as you just said, my own research um, has been on South Sudan for a number of years, and unfortunately, South Sudan is one of these cases. It's the world's youngest country, gained independence in 2011, and then descended into civil war in 2013. The 2015 peace agreement, which focused on power sharing between President Salva Kiir and the former Vice President Riek Machar, collapsed already in 2016, resulting in renewed fighting, even in previously unaffected parts of the country, and also in massive violence in the capital Juba and even attacks against the UN and NGO workers. Now, 2018, um, the peace agreement that ended the civil war so far is called the Revitalized Peace Agreement, precisely because it builds on the same architecture of the previously failed agreement. And the UN mission in South Sudan has since reported that uh, political violence, which is understood as armed violence linked to the civil war actors uh, and the numerous rebel groups, has declined. But the mission also acknowledges that intercommunal violence, which is often referred to as subnational violence, is on the rise and has been dramatically rising since 2018. 
Now, in my previous research, I've argued that communal violence preceded the civil war in South Sudan and would be likely to succeed it as well. And indeed, if you look into the victim numbers, you will see that thousands of people have been killed in these clashes involving communal militias over the past years. Um, there is a problem with this conceptualization of political violence versus subnational violence, which is a UN mission and other actors, international actors, often refer to. It's an artificial binary. And many analysis, including myself, um, have argued this over the past years and have demonstrated that a communal violence is political violence. And it is so important to understand how it is political in order to tackle it both comprehensively on the national and on the local level. Political violence, communal violence as political violence is fought over political appointments, over resources at the subnational level, and it links in various ways to state institutions and national politics. If we reflect on South Sudan now, it's more than four years after the revitalized peace agreement. And unfortunately, the humanitarian situation in the country is as dire as never before. It's extreme levels of food insecurity, a situation close to famine in parts of the country. And even upon independence and during the civil war, the food insecurity situation was never as extreme as it is today in South Sudan after the peace agreement. And lastly, violence against civilians also remains pervasive. Um, at the beginning of this month, in fact, um, at the 3rd of April, the Commission on Human Rights uh, in South Sudan released its latest report. Uh, and even on the first page, uh, the report already notes, and I quote, nearly all of the 14 of the United Nations risk factors for atrocity crimes are now present in South Sudan, end of quote. And the report further refers to the tremendous scale of humanitarian needs, the ongoing internal mass displacement, uh, prevalent patterns uh, and trends of conflict-related sexual violence and so on. So unfortunately, in many ways, South Sudan is one of the countries that really exemplifies the dire consequences of protracted conflicts, fragmented armed groups, and flawed international mediation efforts that uh, Gluck and others uh, in the book detail um, aptly. That's quite interesting because I get a sense that, you know, in... in Mats and Jake's book and that research focus very much on political economy from the perspective of the relationship between the international community, then particularly the United Nations, and what's happening in the country. And you focus more on communal violence, political violence, community level. But I, I assume there's also a political economy going on driving that level of, of, of violence. Um, I don't know if in your research you also interacted with the United Nations mission, but do you have a sense that they understand that political economy and, and monitor it and try to, uh, to act on or influence that political economy? Um, yes, I mean, in my research, I have talked uh, to members in the mission uh, and to many uh, political analysts as well um, based in South Sudan. Um, and unfortunately, and this is in fact echoing uh, a number of the findings of the book as well, the problem is not necessarily a lack of in-depth analysis or understanding of local conflict dynamics. Um, in fact, as Adam Day, for example, in his chapter on South Sudan points out, the mission back in 2011 already had a number of very knowledgeable analysts with deep local context-sensitive analysis uh, based on Juba and other field offices in South Sudan. Or if we reflect on the UN uh, peace missions more broadly now, as Dirk Druett in his chapter, for example, Intelligence Analysis and UN Peace Operations explains, the missions now all have JMAX, uh, Joint Monitoring and Analysis Centers, 
And they all have a strong profile to generate uh, and gather information and analysis on events, incidents, patterns of violence and strategic developments in the countries. JMAX regularly produce key stakeholder profiles that inform senior mission leadership, including, for example, mapping patronage networks, banking systems, or the flow of extractive resources. So there is, in short, much in-depth, um, high-stakes, uh, sophisticated analysis um, that could inform decision-making on the political economy on the local and on the national levels of these different conflict dynamics. However, UN peace operations also need to have the political will and the ability to act based on the sophisticated analysis that they increasingly receive. And as Druid, for example, um, points out in his chapter, he cites a former uh, JMAC analyst who worked with a mission in South Sudan, stating, and I quote, when the relationship with the government is so weak, we would be running real and unnecessary risks to look too closely at issues of corruption and patronage networks. So that is not just a question of um, the knowledge um, of local conflict dynamics and how this would inform um, national-level peacemaking, but also very real uh, and difficult questions around um, the space uh, for maneuvering within these countries uh, with the host uh, government and with the political uh, relationships, um, not just uh, nationally, but also regionally uh, and internationally, as many of the authors, in fact, of the book also make clear. One last point, uh, for example, the chapter on the DRC by Tatiana Karianis uh, and Michael Kavanagh, they detail how major regional and global powers, uh, including members of the Security Council, at times block action on the evidence of corruption and illicit financial flows to protect their national interests or increase political costs for the UN overall. Rather than publicizing corrupt practices by companies and the impact on the conflict, UN leadership is often too cautious too unwilling to take the risk of damaging relationships with the host countries, but also with troop-contributing countries. And Dirk Druitt, for example, concludes in his chapter, arguing that there is a need for building broader international coalitions around political economy issues to generate more leverage in addressing the political economy um, of violence um, with a more coherent strategy. I think that's a very, very interesting point because uh, yeah, in, in missions that have been there for a while, uh, South Sudan, DRC, others, we have, you know, staff, as you mentioned, that have been there for many years, but also very interesting, I think, this kind of new, well, couple of years now, culture of, of hiring, hiring local professional staff. So, so, so South Sudanese or Congolese or others who who are working with the mission, especially in the civil affairs function, um, uh, have a lot of, who have a lot of expertise on the mission as well. But then there are these larger restrictions and limitations. So Mats, I want to ask you as well, why do you think the UN has found it so difficult to engage with you know, negative and destabilizing aspects of the political economy of, of civil wars? And one idea or thought that came to my mind is, you know, this relationship between the panel of experts and the expertise that they have and UN peace operations, which on the one hand structurally needs to be kind of separate, but at the same time I could imagine there's a lot of uh, value that could be gained from a more closer relationship as well. Yeah, it's, it's a very good question, Cedric, and it's one which um, Jana has, has, has touched on already. I mean, I think um, for a long time, and indeed, I suppose when I came to this project initially, the, the answer to your question, why the UN has been relatively um, ineffective or why the record is so mixed, tended simply to be that it's, you know, neglect, 
compounded by you know, limited analytical capacity and also the lack of effective tool. I think what the, what the book suggests and the case that it suggests, the picture is actually much more complex than that. Uh, it is true that in, in some cases, uh, I think it is the chapter on, on, on Mali, uh, political economy is described as still an, an afterthought. And I know that Ian Martin was here a few weeks ago, uh, and Ian Martin wrote about his time as head of the, the mission in Libya, and he said he could have certainly benefited from a greater understanding of political economy. But at the same time, as you both alluded to, um, there is actually a great deal of expertise within the system, and it has evolved over time. And indeed, in the case of the DRC, right from the get-go, the first mission, special panels were set up, and they provided very sophisticated analysis of the political economy dimension of the conflict. You mentioned the case of South Sudan, of there being local experts internally in the mission. The same thing happens for Afghanistan. Unsurprisingly, after 20 years, people really understood the local dynamics. Uh, and also there have been improvements in terms of tools. I mean, the sanctions committee or the sanctions committees of the POC, as you mentioned, are, are certainly potentially very, very promising tools. The new listing criteria by the Security Council, special and more targeted sanctions and so on and so forth. Uh, joint military analysis cells, as you said, are now, are now standard. Um, and, of course, more generally, the UN has also benefited from improvement in information management systems and, and various means of, 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 of data and information collection. So that suggests to me that some of the deeper obstacles to reform still lie in the sort of you know, nature of the UN system or aspects of it, which I have touched on in the introduction to the book, that it is fundamentally an intergovernmental organization. It is intensely political and it is still deeply fragmented bureaucratically uh, for, you know, historical reasons. We touched on the political obstacles to Security Council reform. Sadly, the fallout from Ukraine and the state of Security Council politics is not very helpful there. Um, and that's going to continue to be a, a difficulty. And as you rightly said, the reports that have been issued on, on the DRC, it was just very uncomfortable reading from a lot of member states and a huge amount of pushback. So the first report, unsurprisingly, in 2001, is the most critical and also that's <laughs> remains the most critical one. But there is also, I think, when it comes to the um, another aspect of the political obstacles, and that's what... Um, we describe as the siloing of politics within the secretariat structure. And I'm thinking here, both here in New York, it's a long-running one, and in the mission themselves. And this silencing of politics means that very often uh, some individual missions, head of civil affairs, works on a whole range of issues, a political work, another, and never shall the two meet. <laughs> and that often makes it very difficult to leverage the UN presence in a political way. And I think that is the real challenge. It's partly a bureaucratic one, but politics enters into it. And I think that that needs uh, to, be, to be addressed. But I'd like to say sort of finally on the obstacles here, and I'm sure none of us are suggesting that the answers thrown up by political economy analysis are easy. It's not as if, well, if we could just find the answer, we know what to do. The fact is that in these kinds of societies that are riven by this kind of conflict, we often end up with options which might be bad or very bad or even worse. And our chapter, particularly on the, the criminal agendas, 
where you have countries that rely on illicit economies for basic livelihoods to be sustained, it is very difficult to decide to combat that. I mean, how do you do that? And there are a number of morally complex issues that arise, both analytically and morally, that have to be addressed. And I think that's part of the explanation. It's not just the Secretariat, but the member states have to address. So I think there is a range of issues. And I think it suggests that we should be very humble when we approach these conflicts and try to think very hard of the first, but also the second and third order effects of particular tools used. Um, I think you, you mentioned, uh, Cedric, the, the panel of experts, and, and I do find that a, a very interesting um, uh, or set of bodies, groups of experts, because they have produced some absolutely sterling research, and we have a very good chapter on that, um, by Charlie Cater, who himself served on one of those missions. Um, and the analysis is often often spot on. Um, the problem is, as, we, as I just said, very often the conclusions generated are uncomfortable for member states. And again, the, the, the bureaucratic system at the New York doesn't have a mechanism for feeding that information to emissions specifically. And that, I think, is an area which can be, can be addressed. I really appreciate both of you um you know, pointing out that this is not something that just uh, lies at the level of the mission, because very often when we kind of assess peace operations, we kind of look at the peace operation in the country and the people that are in the Congo in South Sudan. But both of you have really highlighted how it very much depends on also what's happening at the strategic headquarters in New York or especially within the Security Council. Um, and it's interesting because it means if we evaluate peace operations, we shouldn't just look at them at, in isolation, but understand also um, these other levels of influence um, and, and the great, uh, I would say, role they play in what missions can or can't do. But you mentioned earlier, you hinted at some policy recommendations, uh, Matt. So I would like to, uh, as we're running towards a close, ask you a little bit about what recommendations does your book offer uh, for those you know, responsible for planning and managing peace operations about how they can better integrate uh, the knowledge about political economy in how they manage uh, these operations? Well, I think the answer um, flows a little bit from, from my previous discussion about the obstacles. Uh, it seems to me that there is a lot within the UN system broadly conceived that can be systematized. Um, you know, this old phrase, system-wide coherence, and people might just, you know, their, their, their eyes might glaze over when they hear that expression. But I really do think we have to work on that. And particularly what I suggested was this bifurcation between the politics of operations, uh, the politics of the mission, and what you might call civil affairs and other aspects. That, that includes all sorts of things. I mean, this has implications, for example, for how you do security sector reform. It has implications for how you do protection of civilians. It has implications for how you do uh, humanitarian aid. And to try to think very hard about how those, the, the political and the economic can be integrated in a political economy seems to me to be one of the most important uh, things that can be done. Um, there are some more you know, specific recommendations uh, throughout the book. Um, I, I do think I, I probably would want to end on... on on, on, on a sort of broader lesson, um, which is that, again, coming back to the need to think about the politics of these conflicts and that what we should try to do is to think of missions in a way that we, 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 we let the political dynamics that shape conflict society actually 
empower those who have a genuine interest in change, in positive change. Again, it sounds obvious, but very often our policies have had a perverse and unintended consequences of empowering or incentivizing the wrong kind of behavior. And I think much can be gained in strategy lessons and missions planning from thinking very hard based on a political economy analysis of how do these particular actions and intervention incentivize people that have a vested interest in lasting change and societal transformation. And that is obviously a cultural transformation. You'll, be, you'll, be, you'll, you'll no doubt uh, recognize within the UN system, but I think that is important. And doing that seems to me to, be, to require a deep understanding of, of you know, the political economy of conflict. One thing we have noticed is a kind of a shift away from large peacekeeping operations to you know, special political missions. Do you think uh, the mere size of these large operations uh, create more of a political economy uh, or a negative um, effect of the size of those missions and, and uh, the footprint that they have and the economies that they bring with them as opposed to smaller missions? I think there is obviously a sense in which if you have a very, the two things I would say to that, if you have a very large mission, um, then obviously the economic and political footprint will be, will be considerable. Uh, and I think you will tend to complicate this, this, this need to focus on the politics as well as on the range of other issues you need to address. The other thing I wanted to say, and I think that is also borne out to some extent by the, uh, not, not to some extent, I would say it is borne out by the case studies, is that um, the UN's presence to some extent in a mission area, particularly in a civil war context, is a bit of a wasting asset. The longer that it is there, uh, the more it can become enmeshed into the political economy of conflict. And I think the chapter by Menkaus again and Williams on Somalia demonstrates that very, very clearly. So you could, you could say that there is a sort of diminishing you know, or creeping ineffectuality about those UN missions over time. But it raises the big question, what are we going to do with those large missions in Africa at the moment? It seems to be very difficult to disengage for very noble and good reasons. I mean, they are performing often often vital humanitarian roles, um, but the question is whether uh, their, their presence is feeding into the political economy in, in a way that is constructive and helps build lasting peace. Thank you so much. And, and Jana, I just want to come back to you before we, we have to close. Um, I mean, do you think that a better understanding of local conflict dynamics would improve the track record of, of UN peace operations? I think there's been a lot of um, arguing about um, better understanding local conflict dynamics uh, and better linking them uh, to national level conflict dynamics. Um, for example, especially with regard to the DRC, you will know the arguments um, that violence against civilians is often local violence and needs to be addressed on the local level. In fact, my previous work has analyzed um, causal peacemaking efforts by civilians on the local level in communal conflicts. But I also discuss and continue to analyze the scope conditions uh, for such local peacemaking agency. And I think it's really important to bring these scope conditions uh, back into the analysis, both on the local level and on the national level. And it raises questions about how we can better link local and national peace-building um, efforts. For example, in the chapter for the DRC, again, uh, Karajanis and Kavanaugh are very explicit on the limitations of local peace-building approaches. And I think uh, it is important to take these warnings and these limitations very much into account. 
They argue that the mission and the DRC, MONUSCO, has failed to recognize that one cannot simply build the lo state locally in isolation from national dynamics uh, without understanding how local actors relate to national and regional and international political economics uh, and econo political dynamics. There are other cases. South Sudan is a case uh, in point. Um, again, coming back to my previous point and also many of the points that Mats has made, I don't think the problem so much um, is a lack of understanding uh, of local conflict dynamics or having um, the analysis um, to feed uh, into the system. Um, my experience in South Sudan is um, that many people, uh, civil affairs, for example, has uh, negotiated and helped to facilitate numerous local peace agreements over the last few years and local level peace dialogues uh, in various areas of the country. There is not a lack of engagement with local uh, conflict dynamics. There is a broader lack of strategic reflection on how this engagement can link back to national level politics, the overall political economic drivers of violence on the local level and violence on the national level, and how these uh, agreements can be made more sustainable. Because ultimately, we also have a certain risk of moral hazard, more local peace building, more local peace negotiations that repeatedly fail may also have dire consequences for the civilian population. So I think uh, as um, the, chapter, the book authors, in fact, uh, conclude uh, in their final chapter, um, arguing uh, for better and more strategic engagement uh, in terms of multi-level peace building is a really important uh, point to conclude. Not just local level peace negotiations for the sake of more local peace agreements to present, but uh, in fact a better strategic engagement both local and national level for an overall more strategic engagement for sustainable peace. Well, thank you so much. That was a fascinating discussion and so many great insights that have come out of out of both your research and, and the Matches research and, and your book. Congratulations again with your book, Mats. Thanks so much for coming in and discussing it with us today and Jana for, for sharing in the conversation and offering your comments on the book. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this episode of the World State Podcast. So uh, good luck with your future research and thank you for visiting us today. 